boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. In this special pre-recorded edition of The Naked Scientists, we'll be looking at the science and technology behind one of the most iconic events on the cycling calendar, the Tour de France. We'll be finding out the engineering and mechanics behind designing professional road bikes and discover how our bodies can be trained and fed to cycle hundreds of kilometres every day for three weeks. We'll also be out on some of the routes raced in this year's tour, meet the fans that travel from around the globe to see their cycling heroes and meet a world-class sprinter to see how he puts the training, nutrition and equipment together to win. So join me, Mira Senthilingam, to explore the science behind cycling in The Naked Scientists at the Tour de France. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. The Tour de France is an annual cycle race, which takes place in July throughout France and its surrounding countries. And this year's tour saw 22 teams of cyclists battle for a variety of titles and prizes. I joined the Garmin Transitions team out on the road to see it all in action, as it's not just about winning the overall race, which is what Matt White, their sports director, explained to me when I got there. Well, for people looking from the outside, I suppose it's the biggest mobile sporting circus in the world. It's, uh, you know, we're travelling pretty much 20 days, 20 hotels, all parts of France and neighbouring countries, and it's uh, one of the toughest, if not the toughest, uh, bike race on the calendar. It's the key one, really, isn't it? It is, because it's global. There's so much global attention. I don't necessarily think it's the, uh, the hardest climbs or the fastest here or there, but everything that makes a tour the tour, that added pressure from, from the media, from the sponsors, from the riders, from that global audience, it, that's what makes it so special. And how's it actually pieced together? So how does it work? Well, there's uh, 20, between 20 and 22 teams, depending on how many the organisers pick, and basically it's the top 20 uh, teams in the world. It's broken up over 20 stages. The route is different every year. A lot of the a lot of the stages are similar, or use similar climbs or similar finishes. But the the route goes uh, clockwise and any clockwise. But we always finish in Paris and always start in somewhere different. And then in that three to three and a half thousand kilometres, there's a big variety of stages between flat stages for the sprinters, mountain stages for the climbers, and intermediate stages for the guys in between. And is it always a consistent length? Give or take a couple of hundred kilometres. Basically, the guys race between 150 and 200 kilometres every day. So sometimes it's 3,200 kilometres, sometimes 3,500. So, yeah, roughly the same. Well, now, as well as having the stages, there's also different terrains and different kind of, well, land, I guess. So how's that broken up? Well, we always go into the Alps and always go into the Pyrenees. I think the Pyrenees are steeper climbs, harder climbs, and it's usually a little bit hotter down there. And then the Alps are usually better quality roads and uh, not as steep but uh, faster climbs. There's also cobbles involved, aren't there? Not all the time. I think the last time we went over cobbles was 2004, so it's been six years, and it's not. this year's been a special tour for that. And I always imagine that's actually quite a challenge. Well, it's a race within a race, because the guys, some of these guys do race on cobbles in the Classics in, in April, but a lot of these guys are very unfamiliar to that sort of racing, and it certainly did uh, put a cat amongst the pigeons that day. And um, how does the actual points or the scoring work? So there, there are different jerseys. Well, how are these broken up? There's, uh, four, there's the jerseys, obviously the most important jersey, the one that everyone knows, is the yellow jersey. And that's the, the guy with the lowest uh, overall time of that stage of the, the race. Then there's the green jersey, 
which is the points jersey or the sprinter's jersey, and there's, that's contested. There's two intermediate sprints per day along the road, and then the overall points at the finish line. The sprint stages have got more points than the mountain stages, so it's always a sprinter who wins that green jersey. Then there's the polka dot jersey, and that's for the best climber. And the climbs are categorised between small climbs or large climbs, higher, higher to lower points system. That's the best overall climber. And then the white jerseys for the best rider under 26 years of age. So there are different roles within a team, aren't there? So there are different key cyclists or players. There and there's, there's different teams within teams. Teams have got different focuses for the Tour de France, so they bring different riders depending on what their goals are. A team like us, we've got a bit of a mix. Well, we did it at the start anyway before our team leader crashed out. We came to try to run top 10 or, or podium on general classification, and then we've got one of the world's best sprinters. So we had to send a mix between the guys who could support those, uh, both those roles. So what would you say the crucial things are that Team Garmin or Garmin Transitions are going for at this tour? Well, it's been a tricky one because of Christian crashing out on, uh, on day two, so we've had to change our focus. Christian was uh, obviously our team leader, and he's finished uh, fourth and eighth in the Tour de France the last two years, and for him to uh, crash out was a big blow for us. But then we just changed our tact, and uh, obviously Tyler Farrar for the sprint stages. But uh, it was an opportunity for some of these guys to step up, and, uh, and you know, Ryder Hedgedale's done a super job so far, and uh, will continue to the rest of the tour. As well as the jerseys, there's also time trials that take place, and that, that has a different agenda altogether. There is. That's, that's very, very individual. Well, some years have a team's time trial. This year there wasn't one. Last year there was a team's time trial. Uh, yeah, that's every man for himself. And this year's tour, there's only the prologue, which was the first stage, and then the penultimate stage in Bordeaux, which is a very long 50-kilometre uh, time trial. And I guess just to summarise then, what would you say makes the tour what it is? Oh, I think tradition. It's you know, it's France. It's July. A lot of people are on holidays, and I think the last ten or fifteen years, the race has become a lot more global. And you know, you see fans and spectators from everywhere around the world, and that's yeah. There's not too many sporting events that happen to that degree every single year. So it's everyone knows where to find the Tour de France. It's on the roads in July. Matt White, sports director for Team Garmin Transitions. Now the cyclists on the tour wouldn't be able to perform as well as they do without their support teams of doctors, nutritionists, engineers and more. And a factor increasingly playing a key role in winning points and stages is an understanding of aerodynamics. With cyclists reaching speeds of up to 100 kilometres an hour on descents down mountains and wanting to preserve their energy whilst also trying to ride fast on flat stages, the ability to cut through the wind and reduce its resistance is crucial. And one man trying to improve this is the team aerodynamicist, Robbie Ketchell. Aerodynamics is hugely important for time trials and road races. In time trials, wind resistance is the number one resistance on a cyclist. For road races, mainly flat stages, it's the same thing. For climbing, then uh, gravity plays a larger role. So in time trials, they use different equipment that would be more aerodynamic and is just specific for that event, and they also adapt to different positions to try to reduce aerodynamic drag. Whereas in road races, they draft behind each other and ride in packs and try to help uh, different riders on the team be blocked by the, by the wind. So as you've just mentioned, say in a, in a road race, when cyclists cycle, they like to stay together in a pack. How much of a difference does this actually make, and what effect is it having on their cycling in terms of the energy they use? So depending on where they are in the pack and who's around them, they can save anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of the energy that they would have to produce in order to go that fast alone. 
And so it's significantly important for them to conserve energy in, say, a five-hour, six-hour race in which they don't want to be expending that energy or else it will hurt them towards the finish. Generally, especially for the first week of the Tour de France, you'll see most general classification contenders hiding within the pack, and that's just to conserve energy. And I guess this is an important aspect then of teamwork, so how the team would all work together in order to protect their key rider. Exactly. In order to protect your team leader, there are times that you will see the entire team surrounding that leader. And you also see that in sprints, in which you obviously can't sprint from 10 kilometers to the finish. And so most teams will do what's called a lead-out, and they will put four or five riders in front of their team sprinter in order to put them at the front and allow them to ride towards the front of the pack while conserving energy for them. So, well, you said that, what, 25 to 30 percent of energy can be saved um, when riding in a pack, but why exactly does that happen? Basically, what happens when you ride behind somebody is um, you're blocking that wind. So it basically directs wind around the first rider that hits the wind. The wind goes around that body, and it creates a bubble that they can sit in, and that's called drafting when they are uh, reducing that wind on the second rider. And um, what about then as more riders get involved? Riding in the middle of a pack with people surrounding you on the left and right side and in front um, is different than riding in, uh, say, single file. And that's why they ride like that. The problem with drafting in single file is that wind doesn't always come from head on. And so sometimes you'll see people ride in what's called an echelon, and they're just offset to the right or left side of the rider in front of them. And that's to draft from the uh, direction that the wind's coming from. So there's really a lot for cyclists to be thinking about as they're going along these courses. Yeah, it's funny you ask that because uh, drafting, when you're in a bike race, it's almost like a natural occurrence. You can literally just feel that the wind's coming a little from the left, and you know to ride a little to the right of the rider in front of you. Now, you've mentioned the importance of drafting, but just how close do the riders actually have to be for this? The riders can actually feel an effect anywhere from two feet behind the rider in front of them. But you get a larger effect the closer you are to the rider in front of you, so you try to get as close as possible. Well, that touches on road racing, but um, another aspect is time trials. What role does aerodynamics play here? In individual time trials, they obviously can't draft off another rider because they start by themselves. It's actually illegal to draft, so if they were to catch the rider that started in front of them, they wouldn't be able to use their slipstream to draft off of. So what we do in that case is we adapt. We use different helmets, different clothing, different shoes, different bikes in different positions. So let's go into positioning first. So how does a rider's position affect speed in a time trial and how does aerodynamics play a role? The position can contribute up to 90% of the aerodynamic drag. So even though we spend a lot of time on different equipment, position is the number one factor. But in order to reposition somebody to be more aerodynamic, they also have to be physiologically efficient. They have to produce power to actually move the bike. And so we can't just put somebody in, say, a Superman position flat out and expect them to still have the same performance, even though it significantly reduces aerodynamic drag. So you have to have a balance between the two. And that's why you see so many riders with different positions out there. There's, there's not one position that works for all riders. Well, what about the gear? There are a number of things that you can do just with equipment. So, for instance, all teams use different time trial bikes 
road bikes generally have round tubings to them because they're trying to make them light and something that would be better to go over hills and also really stiff, whereas time trial bikes have airfoil-shaped tubing to them to make them more aerodynamic. All riders wear aerodynamic helmets. They have a teardrop shape to them. For clothing in road races, riders wear shorts and a jersey, whereas in time trials they wear what's called a skin suit, and it's a one-piece tight-fitting skin suit. So these skin suits and the helmets, what are they actually doing to reduce the drag? biggest thing that they're doing is they're reducing turbulence around the body. For instance, if you were to stand outside in a windy day and you had a, a rain jacket on, you can hear it flapping. And a similar effect happens when you have a jersey on that's loose fitting, which would be better for climbing. It's a little bit cooler, a little bit maybe lightweight and not as restrictive. Whereas these skin suits are tight and reduce those wrinkles and reduce the turbulence around the body. And, well, you've just touched on climbing there as well. So what role does aerodynamics play in if you're a climber? A much smaller role. Generally, when you get anywhere uh, below 20 kilometers per hour, aerodynamics does not play as much of a role. Aerodynamic drag, it actually increases exponentially to the velocity that you're going. So any time that you're going at a slower speed, it's not going to contribute as much. And so I guess just lastly, how would you summarize then the importance of this to cyclists? Like how, how much of a priority is it, say, compared to all the different things they have to consider? For events where it makes a difference, it is the most important thing that you can try to manipulate. That was Robbie Ketchell, aerodynamicist for Team Garmin Transitions. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. This is a special edition of the Naked Scientists with me, Mira Senthilingam, as this week we're exploring the science and technology behind the Tour de France. Endurance events like this one rely on strong, sturdy, yet fast equipment to win points, time and stages. So the structure and design of these road bikes is constantly developing. To find out more about their design, I went along to the warehouse of Trek Bikes, providers to Team Radio Shack on the tour, and met media officer and avid cyclist Chris Garrison. Bicycles basically have the same shape, no matter what they're made from you'll have basic things like the shape of the handlebars will either be flat or they might be ram's horns, which are road bike bars. What you really need to look at is what the bike is made out of. Is it a metal bike or is it something else, a composite material, we say. The highest-end bikes are going to be made entirely of carbon fiber. Most other bikes, the common bikes that you see on the street, are either made from steel or aluminum. So the real difference between one bike and another is what it's made from. Okay, well, Chris, we're currently in the middle of the Trek warehouse. We're surrounded by thousands of very expensive bikes, but we have one particular model here in front of us, which is a a typical one of your high-end road race bikes. Tell me more about its structure. This particular bike is our flagship model. It's called the Madone. The thing that's going to separate one Madone versus another is the type of carbon fiber blend that we put into the bike. Carbon fiber is a lot like paper. You have something like lace paper that's really thin. 
you have normal everyday A4 paper, then you can go all the way up to carbon fiber that's more like cardboard. It's thicker. It weighs more. It's a little bit structurally more sound. The highest end madones are going to have the most lightweight carbon fiber within them, and we're going to use the heavier weight carbon in places where we need the bike to be very, very structurally strong and stiff. But um, what aspects of it are made of carbon fiber? Because I know, so the frames are, but interestingly, so are the wheels. So it's all just carbon fiber here. If you imagine what a typical bicycle looks like, you essentially have two triangles that are attached to each other in the middle. In this case, everything in those two triangles on this bike is made of carbon fiber. Also, the part that holds on the front wheel of the bike, which is referred to as the fork, is made of carbon fiber. And in this version, the wheels themselves, the rims, the actual braking surfaces are also carbon fiber. And then there's a carbon fiber fairing, um, which helps in the aerodynamic proportion of the wheel. That is also made of carbon fiber. So the whole bike from tip to tail with the exception of the saddle and the things that you actually grip onto with your hands, is made of carbon fiber. The frame itself is not all one piece of carbon, but rather it's several pieces of carbon that have been molded individually and then are pieced together like a giant jigsaw puzzle and held in place with a space-age-level epoxy that we've borrowed from NASA. And how much of a difference does this make, then, in terms of performance of the bike? Carbon fiber is light and fast. If you have someone who is a top-level rider, like a Lance Armstrong, then when they actually need to put a lot of power into the bike, the material itself is going to maintain its shape. It's not going to deflect. It's not going to be like an aluminum can that you can bend and then eventually break apart. It's going to maintain its stiffness, and the reason why it's able to do that is because of the forces that carbon fiber is, is able to take. It's extremely, extremely strong under compressive load, which is the same thing as standing up out of the saddle and putting power into the pedals. You don't want the bike to flex in that situation because then it means that the rider is actually wasting energy in order to make the bike go forward. But now moving away from the material itself and onto other aspects of the bike, um, how about the gears? So bikes like this, how many gears do they typically have? Most bikes will come with eight, nine, or ten gears in the back and either two or three chain rings in the front. And typically, say, a rider in the Tour de France, so one of their bikes, how many gears or what gear combinations would that have? They'll definitely have two chain rings in the front. Usually it is one large chain ring and one smaller chain ring. The larger one they'll use for flats and for descents, one enormous one if they're doing a flat time trial, for example, and then either 10 or 11 speeds in the back. Again, it depends on what the terrain is of the day. If, if somebody is racing in the tour, then they're going to mix the gear combinations depending on what stage they're riding. If they're in a flat stage, then they're going to have harder gears in the back because they don't need climbing gears. If it's a day where they're spending the day entirely in the Alps or the Pyrenees, then their mechanics are going to put a different gear set on their wheels that make it easier to climb those big, enormous hills. At the same time, they'll keep the chain rings in the front probably the same as they are because there is going to be a descent at some point where they really want to drop into those hard gears and start building up lots and lots of speeds on the descents. So that's quite handy that they just change it along the tour itself. They have a service truck with spare bikes, spare wheels, spare saddles, spare handlebars, spare everything. Now, this particular bike, though, has um, electronic gears, which is a fairly recent technology in terms of bikes. So how does this actually work electronically, and how much of a difference does it make? At the end of the day, you have a derailleur in the back that moves the chain from one gear to another, and you have a derailleur in the front that does the same thing. What is different about it, though, is that it's now done by wire instead of by a cable, and 
as a result of that, the, sm- the shifting of, of this bike is extremely, extremely smooth over, say, a cable-actuated setup. It also means that the front derailleur knows which gear the rear, rear derailleur is in, and it can adjust itself accordingly so that you get away from that really annoying chain rub that you often hear when you're riding a cabled system. The weight is really no different than its non-electrical counterpart. Um, it has a battery that adds about 58 grams to the overall weight of the group set, but otherwise it's kind of one of those things that is pretty cool in terms of bells and whistles additive to the bike. But one thing I mainly notice when looking at um, professional road bikes like these ones is just how thin it is. So the wheels themselves look like they're about an inch wide or so. They actually run somewhere between 18 to about 27 millimetres wide in tyre width. Typically what the pros will ride on is probably in the 23 millimetre neighbourhood. And all of that is just designed to reduce the amount of drag that they are experiencing as they go over the road. It's not like a mountain bike where you want to have a thicker tread because you're going over surfaces that aren't paved. In this case, these guys are riding on tarmac roads all the time. They don't need a large contact patch. They want to go fast. And the larger the contact patch, obviously, the more drag is going to be on the bike, and that means they're going to go slower. Chris Garrison from Trek Bikes. And as she mentioned, professional road race bikes have different gear sets for different days, thin wheels and light yet strong frames. That's a lot to factor in. But luckily for the cyclists, they have a mechanic on hand to get things prepped in the morning and fixed at night. Mechanics like Jeff Brown, who I caught up with before one of the stages was due to begin. Well, there's a group of three of us mechanics. We all basically do the same job. Most of the work is done in the evening. And then this morning is just basically uh, tyre inflation, putting the spare bikes on top of the race cars or the following cars and uh, putting the race bikes on the other cars to transport them to the start. That's it. So, well, the race is due to start in under an hour, so we're just now here by the team cars with all the bikes on top. So how much did one of these things weigh? Uh, 6.8 kilos complete. And there's actually a, a rule, isn't there, about how little that weight can be? Yeah. Small, even. The weight is 6.8 kilos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're right on the dot. We always try and make sure that every bike is right on the dot. Everybody has a choice of shape that they can use and size, what have you. The handlebars, the smaller riders use a narrower handlebars. The bigger rider uses a wider handlebar, uh, a longer stem, a shorter stem. The bikes are basically made to measure for each rider. How many bikes does a rider get through, really? So I guess only when it, something bad, a crash happens. Do they swap or do they just swap anyway just for freshness? No, I mean, here at the Tour, each rider, uh, if you include uh, their time trial bike... Every rider has four bikes. So they have the race bike, their primary race bike. Then they have what we call their first spare bike, which goes on the first chase car. Uh, And then everybody has a second spare bike. So we have many, many plan Bs and plan Cs. Well, then it's no wonder that there are so many cars with bikes on top following them. Before, it wasn't like that. I mean, this is my 13th Tour de France. And I remember when I first started, uh, every rider had one spare bike, and that was it. But now we're just basically roll. Every team is a rolling bike shop. We leave nothing to chance. It's all everything has to be able to be done here at the tour. So post race, what do you have to do to get everything back on track for tomorrow? Okay, so after the race, we'll arrive at the hotel and uh, we'll have to first wash the bikes, clean them. We'll double check them, make sure everything's okay. We'll check, go over them. We'll replace a few small pieces if necessary. Perhaps a guy needs new handlebar tape, uh, new brake pads. Uh, maybe a cable here or there. 
We'll have about two and a half to three hours worth of work after the race tonight. So regular maintenance and spares on tap are the key to a panic-free ride. That was Jeff Brown, mechanic for Team Garmin Transitions. But as well as mending broken bikes, the cyclists may need broken bones mended, which is when team medic Shannon Sovendahl is called into action. I found out more about his role. There's a couple aspects. One is preparing them for the race, so making sure that they're just healthy and they're kind of in top form. The second is the kind of obvious one that the doctor would perform after they crash. We take care of whatever injuries they have. And then the third is kind of just health maintenance, you know, if they have saddle sores, road rash, things that are ongoing for the race. And then finally, there's a psychology aspect of it as well, keep them motivated, make them think that they can keep doing this day after day. Physically speaking, then, what makes a good cyclist? I mean, really, it's a physiologic problem for a cyclist because they're a pure endurance athlete, essentially. There's not a ton of technique in cycling when you compare it to other sports like swimming or something like that. So it's really, can they just go fast, create a large oxygen output for a long period of time? That's really what makes a great cyclist is their ability to do a large amount of work over a period of time. What about the different um, types of cyclists, so the climbers and the sprinters? What's different about them physically? Generally, the climbers are going to be light. Anything that you carrying extra is heavier to get up a hill. So it's all about you know amount of work done and what distance you get for that work. So a light, small cyclist can go uphill faster. I mean, they generally have the ability to put out a large amount of power for an extended period of time, whereas a sprinter can put out a huge amount of power for a short period of time. And to do that, they usually need to be bigger. They just need to have more muscle bulk, more muscle fibers to actually put out that power output. And what about um, things like muscle fatigue then? Because they're cycling, what, for hours a day, every day, for three weeks here. So, I mean, that's got to play a a vital role, but just their recovery from that. Uh, Absolutely. And, I mean, what a sprinter is good at is suffering for the day, and then he can still call on his body to do that short burst of work, even when his muscle fibers are fatigued. Whereas a climber will ride the whole day and then at the end has to climb up an out-of-category climb so he can still do another 40 minutes of, of extended work. And then for any cyclist in the Tour de France, the ability to recover for the next day is key. If they can't do that, they, they're going to be out of the race. What about these cyclists that you hear that have got a broken rib and like a broken arm and they'll carry on for like 200 kilometres up a mountain still or still win a sprint race? I mean, surely that can't actually be good for your body. The Tour de France is not good for your body, first of all, for any cyclist. That's the cyclist's job is to suffer like that. If he has a broken bone, they're just tough guys. They're mentally tough, period, because that's what their sport revolves around. A big component of being a professional cyclist is suffering. They're good to shut off their brain and say, whatever pain I'm having, I just work through. Talking of injuries, what's the worst you've seen? Very bad head injuries are the most concerning thing. And certainly everybody should be wearing a helmet. You ask any professional cyclist almost, and they'll tell you that they've been at some point been saved by their helmet. I mean, literally saved. You know, your helmet falls off your head after you crash, and you're okay. But uh, head injuries, you know, the most severe, and then your spine, those kind of things. Everything else, you know, you, you actually can get through, kind of. Team doctor Shannon Sovendahl, explaining the physiology and increased pain thresholds of professional cyclists. And if you'd like to find out more about the science and medicine behind sport... The Open University have a range of sports science resources, including interviews with top athletes and their training regimes. To find that, go to thenakedscientists.com and follow the link to the Open University. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is a special edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Mira Senthi-Lingam as this week we're exploring the science and technology behind cycling as we venture out to the Tour de France. And still to come, we meet world-class sprinter Tyler Farah. 
But first, we've had an insight into the role engineering can play in producing faster, stronger bikes. But what about the strength and speed of the person on the bike, the cyclist? Cyclists on the Tour de France cover between 150 and 200 kilometres every day for three weeks, with only two rest days in between. This requires an extreme level of stamina and endurance. So to find out how the physiology required to meet this endurance level can be monitored and improved upon, when I got back, I met sports physiologists Fergal Grace and Adrian Elliott in their sports science lab at Kingston University and took naked scientist Julia Graham along for some testing. Well, first of all, uh, for cyclists, we're looking at their aerobic fitness, which is key to being a top-quality performance cyclist. Other things we'll look at are muscle power. You'll have two different types of cyclists. You'll have the, the climbers and, you'll have some, and the sprinters. Now, they've got fundamentally different muscle fibre types. Okay, so the sprinters have got, can generate a lot of power very quickly. Climbers have got a sustained, controlled release of power. So um, we're currently in your lab here at Kingston at the moment where um, naked scientist Julia Graham is currently undergoing a VO2 max test. So this is obviously monitoring oxygen. So what, what does this test involve with regards to oxygen uptake? We know how much oxygen is in the atmosphere. Okay? And if we can measure accurately expired ventilation, which is when somebody breathes out during exercise, the difference between the atmospheric air and the air that's expired out is being consumed by the body. Now, the more aerobically fit somebody is, the more oxygen they can utilise per kilo of body mass. Okay, and that's fundamentally what this test measures. Now, Adrian, Julia is currently on a Velotron, which is an indoor bike. She's wired up to all sorts of computers. You're the one here testing her and monitoring her. So what are you actually looking at now when she's on this? At the moment, we can see the amount of oxygen that Julia is consuming per minute. We can see that relative to her body mass, which gives us a good indication and allows us to compare Julia's values to those achieved by individuals of other sizes, whether they be elite athletes or cardiovascular patients. And what are the measurements at the moment, then? At the moment, we see uh, VO2, so which is oxygen consumed at 30, roughly about 30 millilitres per kilogram of Julia's body mass per minute. Uh, We'd expect that to rise in a a healthy sedentary individual to values in perhaps the 40s. The more trained an individual becomes and perhaps the more genetically predisposed towards aerobic exercise they are, we should see values in excess of 60, 70, perhaps even 80 millilitres per kilogram per minute. And how much can someone then train to actually say, what, almost double that then? Or they can participate in prolonged aerobic exercise. Perhaps an elite endurance athlete would be training perhaps two, three, four hours a day, trying to look at using the heart and lungs to bring in oxygen and encourage the muscle cells to actively use that oxygen. And how useful would you say then this test is then for pro cyclists to kind of be aware of their VO2 max? It's very useful. It allows them to see their total capacity, so aerobic capacity, the maximum amount of oxygen they can use at sea level at the moment. What we can also see from the data we're getting in this test is something called anaerobic threshold, which will tell us the intensity at which an individual can sustain exercise for extended periods of time in excess of perhaps 20, 30 minutes. I guess that is crucial, because at the moment, what Julia will be on this bike for about 10 minutes, say, and she's not always, if she was to go for hours, going to be at the same peak performance, is she? No, absolutely not. I mean, the, the values that she achieves at the high-intensity stages uh, wouldn't be sustainable for a long period of time. Perhaps what becomes more in- interesting is the more we can look at Julia, the more we can see what kind of exercise level she can sustain. So she may keep the same total capacity, but if she can train to the point where she can work at a higher intensity, so a higher percentage of that 
aerobic capacity, then that will come with benefits in terms of performance times and perhaps placings in an event. Now, Julia, you've been going for 13 minutes on this test. How are you feeling? I'm pretty out of breath. <laughs> how has the resistance been, or how has it generally felt throughout, though? Well, it goes up each time, so by the end it was really tough, and I'm pretty knackered. <laughs> but initially, so when you first started out, were you OK at a steady pay? Yeah, initially it was really easy, and I thought, I can do this really easily. And then it gets much harder as you go along. I'm pretty knackered. <laughs> well, um, Adrian, what are Julia's results then now? Uh, Julia reached a, a VO2 max. That's a maximum oxygen consumed of uh, 45 millilitres per kilogram per minute. So it's in the range that we would associate with an active, sedentary, but healthy individual. Um, if Julia were to now engage in some aerobic training, perhaps train for a, a long event, we'd anticipate that her VO2 would rise up into the 50s, perhaps 55 would be a target, a realistic target for Julia at this stage. So well done, Julia. Thanks very much, yeah. Now, Fergal, what's actually going on inside someone's body then to affect this capacity and, and this uptake? If we look at this, you know, just from the outside, it looks like it's very much breathing or respiratory-based or based around your lungs. In actual fact, the major changes that are happening are with the heart. The heart is going to become more elastic, going to fill with more blood, and it's going to pump that blood around the body. Now, what happens with an endurance training program is that the, the chambers inside the heart become larger. And in doing so, they're able to hold more blood. And when it contracts, they're able to force more blood around the body so that the body becomes more efficient at pumping oxygenated blood around the body. What are other tests, then, that you also perform in the lab to assess other factors as well as VO2 max? Yeah, some of the factors we look at would be metabolic. And the one that immediately springs to mind is a lactate threshold test, whereby another incremental test is done on a, on a number of occasions and lactate samples are taken at the end of each stage. Lactate is a, a toxic metabolite in the body, you know, formed from the, the breakdown of carbohydrate. When it builds up in the muscles, it creates fatigue. Once somebody becomes more efficient at, at exercise, you can delay the onset of that uh, accumulation of lactate. That's why cyclists would be interested in coming into a lab, having a, a lactate profile test done, and on the basis of that, they can work out how hard they're going to exercise during their training sessions. So they're going to want to exercise on or about their lactate threshold. So that is the point at which you're exercising at approximately 70 to 75% of your maximum ability and the lactate starts to appear in the bloodstream. A last factor then, Adrian, um, is the fact that a lot of cyclists also, as well as monitoring their oxygen uptake, also look at how much power they're actually producing when they're cycling. Uh, yes, well, we've measured power here. Uh, Julia reached uh, a value of 170 watts, which equates to around about 3 watts per kilogram for body mass. In cycling, power-to-weight ratio is, is the key for most of the performance. In a pro cyclist, for instance, in the stage on the Col de Tourmalet, leaders were reaching values reported to be just under 6 watts per kilogram, which is an extraordinary amount, even for most trained individuals. Uh, we rarely see values such as that, and they're sustaining those levels over an extended period of time, perhaps 30, 40 minutes for the duration of a climb. How would you summarise, then, the key kind of factors that are crucial to someone coming in and knowing what they need to make them a good pro cyclist? Okay, well, if we were to prioritise, we'd look at, as we've done today, aerobic capacity, anaerobic threshold. We'd also be very interested in the efficiency of an individual, so perhaps looking at their oxygen consumed per unit of work or how much of the energy they produce goes into actually moving forward, keeping a low body mass and a low 
upper body surface area. Together, those, those factors are, are probably the, the major determinants of cycling performance, particularly at the professional level. So although many of us could train to improve our endurance, there are a rare group of humans out there that are actually able to perform at the levels that the pro cyclists do. So it comes down to genetics in the end. That was Adrian Elliott and Fergal Grace from the School of Sports and Exercise Science at Kingston University. Now, these elite athletes have high-performing bikes and high-performing bodies. But what's it actually like out on one of the stages, especially one of the climbing stages? And other than winning, where else can points be won along a route? To find out, I joined the Tour de France sponsorship manager and ex-tour cyclist Andrea Perron for a drive along stage 9 of the race, which was the first big climb of the Tour from Morzin to Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne, reaching heights of 2,000 metres. Pretty tough one. We don't have a happy finish. The finish is down on the flat after a four tough category climb. The toughest is the last one. The last one is called the La Madeleine. It's 23 kilometres long for about 1,800 metres of average gain. Pretty tough climb, considering that before the riders, they already had to climb three other climbs. Now, we've been driving along um, most of the route so far, and along it there are various kind of sprint stages and spots for the king of the mountain points and things like that. So um, how many of those are there along here? Today, uh, there's two uh, point uh, intermediate sprints, uh, which uh, they bring points for uh, the green jersey. And then uh, there's uh, five uh, climbing uh, sprints. The last one is the one that carries more points and is also a horse category climb, means that it's among one of the hardest climb uh, in the tour. Well, you're an ex-rider yourself, really. So what kinds of things are going through your mind when you're, say, descending at such great speeds? And how fast speed, a speed do the cyclists reach? When you go downhill, uh, you, you just try to envision uh, the best uh, trajectory and uh, try to handle the bike as best as you can, uh, knowing when you have to brake uh, and, and try to calculate the risk. Of course, sometimes you, you don't calculate well enough and there's some crashes, especially because uh, the surface sometimes is, uh, is rough and it makes it harder to handle the bike. The maximum speed reached uh, can be up to 100 kilometers per hour. But uh, that's very rare, only when uh, you have a straight section of, uh, of downhill. Otherwise, um, 70 up to 90 kilometers per hour. When it comes to these big climbs like today, there's obviously a change in altitude, changes in temperature as they're going through the route. So how much does this affect them? The altitude uh, doesn't affect too much because, uh, okay, today they're going to feel a little bit the altitude only on the last kilometers of the last uh, climb, which reaches uh, a bit over 2,000 meters. The temperature uh, difference is going to affect them more. Today, the maximum temperature uh, change, uh, it varies uh, up to probably 15, 18 degrees from the very bottom uh, part of the stage when uh, it's going to be probably 33 degrees up to the top of Kolavaman land where probably we're going to have uh, 15 degrees maybe. Temperature will affect them more if uh, there's a bad stormy day or a rainy day. That's when, uh, especially going downhill, the temperature is much lower and your body's already wet from the rain and colder. So that's when uh, you really have to find something uh, to keep the riders uh, warmer. 
the race has been happening for the stage has been happening for a while now so you've been getting updates here through the radio so what's been happening so far today so far the race is at kilometer uh, around 60 58 60 and uh, they have this eight men with a two and a half minutes lead and then about three minutes uh, behind the big peloton with uh, with the yellow jersey and um, so they're about 60 kilometers in so far. How, what's the actual total length of today's day? It's uh, 205 kilometers. We've just been driving along the route and they're actually not very far behind us now, are they? Well, we are going uh, considerably faster of them uphill, but then uh, on the descent they're going faster than us. Now, as we've been driving along, there have just been fans lining the entire route and some sections just have hundreds of them and camper vans everywhere. As you're going down the route, how important are these supporters, do you think? How much do they help by being around and cheering? They help a lot. I mean, it's so fun. It's good. It, it, they really cheers you up, uh, especially on the climbs, because uh, on the climbs you just go through two walls of fan and uh, they scream so loud... Uh, it gives you definitely an extra kick on your effort when you when you go up. Tour de France sponsorship manager Andrea Perron. And as he mentioned, the fans lining the streets of the route really do provide an incredible atmosphere. They travel thousands of miles across the globe to see cyclists passing for a matter of seconds. So I jumped out of the car along the route to meet some fans that were certainly having a good time. Now, I'm just outside with a lot of supporters that are all lining the streets here following the Tour de France. What are some of your names? Nigel from Leamington Spa in England. Hayley from Leamington. Now, um, why are you all here supporting the Tour? What do you think about the Tour? It's brilliant. What an event. Great. And are you supporting any particular ride? We're going to win it. We're going to win. Bradley's going to win. Here today. Uh, to drink, to drink. We, uh, we brought a lot of beers of rosé from Savoie and we are here in Notre Dame de Bellecombe. So you're enjoying the tour? Yes, of course, of course. And how, le- how early did you all come here then in order to oh, set up here? We, and we, look- just, we just left, uh, we, we left the car very early in the morning with the band, with the beers, with the rosé, with the flags, with everything and then we met here with friends, a lot of English friends in Notre Dame de Bellecombe who came... My name's Tim, and I'm from uh, from South London. Okay, and Tim, why are you here supporting the tour and um, spectating? Oh, I, I just think it's a great, great event. It's a great time. Bought my bike out here, doing a few of the uh, stages, whatever, getting on. And are you supporting the British riders? Oh, of course, totally, totally. Anyone in particular you're following? No, not really. I mean, I just admire them all, really. I admire them all for the athletes that they are, so it's great. It's a great atmosphere out here. It's absolutely fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> But as I mentioned, the tour attracts fans from halfway across the world, as well as local cycling teams. And I met quite a few during my days out there. My name is Thierry Delambert. Thierry, what are you doing here today at Stage 10? We're here in Chambéry, but you're now part of a big group of cyclists, is that right? I belong to a, a secret tourist team uh, of Chambéry. We, are, we enjoy to, to practice uh, bicycle. We, we climb uh, very, very often, and we know the difficulties to practice uh, in the mountains. And so we climb at six or seven, maybe ten kilometers by uh, hour. And so when you know professional practice at uh, about 20 
in the same conditions, so it's very attractive to do that. My name is Jeff, Jeff Bowden. I live in Miami Beach, Florida. I came here for a week just to watch the, the Tour de France and uh, just check out the, uh, the Alps. And so that's quite a long way to come, specifically to watch it. I like cycling a lot. I like watching it. My wife gave me a week to go on vacation without her. So. And um, what have you managed to see so far then? So we're on to stage 10 here today. Uh, yesterday we started in Saint-Jean uh, de Maurienne. I rode from there to Alberville, then Alberville up the Col de Madeleine. Went up to the, the summit to watch all the, the bikers come up there. And uh, Yesterday was, was a great time. And what do you think is the best thing about coming to watch it? Is it the atmosphere or is it just the cyclists themselves? I think it's the atmosphere, having people just from all over the world in, in one spot, hear all the different languages, and everyone was very friendly to each other, and it was, it was, it was a great time. My name is Des Cheatley, and I'm from New Zealand. Uh, my name is Greg Brown, and I'm from New Zealand. So that's a long way to come over to watch the tour. So what's made you guys come? First of all, we watch it every year on TV in New Zealand, and... Uh, we look at a lot of the slopes and a lot of these mountains here and the excitement of the thing and uh, it always looks like it's a flat terrain but until you actually get your bike and you ride it, it's a whole new ball game and you can see how these guys would suffer and the strength that they have to get up these hills and that. Do you cycle yourself? Uh, yes I do, uh, just the same thing, you, you look at it and you see the way these guys suffer and the work that they do and to actually come here and ride the same rides that they ride and see what they go through, it's, um, it's a real eye-opener. I mean, I take my hat off to those guys. What about um, the atmosphere? Because it's quite, I mean, we're here, what, the, just at the start of Stage 10. There's so many people here, there's publicity vehicles going through. It's quite a, a festival vibe, isn't it? It is very festival. In fact, there's so much passion here for the sport. It's uh, unbelievable. We are just talking about it before. Have you managed to get quite close to the cyclists as they pass? Oh, yeah, I mean, you, you can reach out I mean, as close as you are to me. Uh, in fact, if you don't keep your wits about you, they'll r- ride over you. <laughs> and you'd hate to be the person to cause them to see that. Absolutely, I wouldn't like to take a bike rider down. <laughs> so it's clear that a lot of the spectators are avid cyclists themselves. That was a mix of fans from various stages of the tour explaining their reasons for watching the race. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to the Naked Scientists Tour de France special with me, Mira Senthilingam. So far, we've heard how scientists can train their bodies to handle the endurance required to finish the tour. But what about their diet? As well as being fit, they need energy to keep them going. I went back to Kingston University to ask Dr Fergal Grace about the calories and nutrients consumed and needed by these elite athletes. After three weeks of cycling, a cyclist who's finished, actually finished the tour, is going to have expended approximately 120,000 uh, calories while they're on the bike. We can equate that to about 14, 15 pounds of fat. You know, you can take it that, that they need to consume vast amounts of calories just to finish the tour. The calories that they'll take on board are going to be, they'll keep a normal athlete's diet, which is a minimum 60% carbohydrate, 10% protein, and the remainder fat. Now, what they will do with this is up their carbohydrates, maybe lower the fat intake, and as they're cycling, they're going to take simple carbohydrates as gels, high-energy drinks, as opposed to hard meals. What sorts of simple carbohydrates? Um, Glucose, glucose, fructose, uh, galactose taking on board simple carbohydrates like that uh, takes away the process by which the body has to break down the carbohydrates so they become immediately usable as a fuel. Now if somebody is exercising for 
periods of greater than one hour, blood glucose levels when you're exercising at a moderate level of intensity after one hour starts to decline. They're going to have to keep these topped up while they're on the bike. Another thing that they will, they'll avoid doing is taking on board simple carbohydrates immediately before exercise. Because if you take these simple carbohydrates immediately before exercise and start to exercise, you get an insulin spike and a drop in blood glucose. Okay, so they get what's called rebound hypoglycemia, which is a rapid drop in blood glucose level right at the, the, the moment that they need to have um, stable amounts of glucose. And what about hydration? So especially, I think, in this year's tour, temperatures reached ridiculous levels. It was in the high 30s at points. So how important is hydration, and how should that be monitored or kept? Yeah, well, hydration is absolutely imperative for anybody involved in any type of uh, exercise activity. A drop in approximately 2% of your body weight. Um, So we're talking for a 50-kilo male, a drop of about 2 kilograms or 2 litres of fluid can uh, result in a drop in performance of between 10 and 20%. The cyclists in the tour will be hydrated before the race and they will consume approximately one litre of water per hour okay, at a constant rate. What about, um, say, energy drinks? The energy drinks or replacement drinks are generally high in carbohydrate, okay, so they'll have some complex carbohydrate but mostly simple sugars. You know, many of them will have some amino acids in them, so you may have branched-chain amino acids added in. And they are good. They're a good source of getting high energy into the body quickly. So it seems carbohydrates are the key, during performance anyway. Kingston University's Dr Fergal Grace. But what's the ranking of nutrients after carbohydrates? Plus, could the diet be controlled as a preventative measure to protect our bodies as well? I caught team nutritionists Mark Quad and Matt Rabin in the riders area before stage 10 of the tour. And Mark began by explaining the ranking of nutrients after the crucial carbohydrate. After the race protein... Uh, they're out there on the bike for so long you always get some uh, muscle degradation so to maintain uh, protein balance throughout the three week race so protein is very important and of course fats are important for various other body functions as well so that's, that's the general order And what about the timings of when they should eat? So now we're, well, this is stage 10 the race is in about an hour what have they eaten this morning and was there meant, is there meant to be a certain gap? Yeah, the guys uh, have a protocol of when to eat in the morning. First they get up and have some breakfast, and an hour or so later they have a race meal with rice and pasta and things like that. Now, just an hour before the race, they also have uh, liquid meals um, that have carbohydrates, proteins and fat in certain quantities, so, uh, so they're well and truly loaded and ready to go for the race. Now, moving over to you, Matt, the cyclists here are on a non-gluten diet, so gluten-free. Why is that important? We implemented that in around 2008, just because we looked at foods which are more difficult to digest, more difficult to assimilate, um, we noticed that some people had an issue with, with gluten. Since we've implemented it, we've found that the guys don't get so bloated when they eat certain foods. So that typically means leaving bread, for example, out, out of the diet. But we also have removed many other sort of uh, simple foods which typically can cause irritation and harder to digest. Such as? Such as dairy, for example. So we gave a plan to our, to our chef at the start of the tour and he knows exactly sort of what our protocols are as it relates to foods that we want to try and eliminate, foods we want to try and to replace with those. And you also deal with, say, recovery foods. So, um, you know, cyclists, they're greatly using their muscles. They're obviously exhausted after races. So what's the road to recovery diet-wise? Um, these days in cycling, you've got 16 hours, say, from when they get off the bike to when they get back on the bike the next day. With that in mind, we sort of looked at the guys, some simple blood values and things that the, some of the riders might have intolerances with or allergies 
uh, against, and we just try and remove those from the diet. That allows the body to assimilate and digest a lot better without irritation and allow them to sort of recover better ultimately. Inflammation is a key thing, isn't it? The foods that we, we sort of try and promote, if you like, are of an anti-inflammatory nature. Cellular inflammation is going to affect everything that a rider does, and because uh, the body is under stress all day, four, five, six hours a day on the bike, that is going to create inflammation. So anything we can do to sort of uh, stop that in between stages is going to, going to be a, of benefit for their performance. So the less inflammation you have and the more we can get that, that under control, the better they're going to perform. How do you even go about testing this? How do you know who's more inflamed than others? Every quarter we measure some simple blood parameters such as the arachidonic acid in the blood and uh, icopantanoic acid in the blood, so that's AA and EPA in the blood. And we look at these ratios to tell us how, uh, how inflamed the bodies are at any given time. From that we can modify their diet and give them the instructions to modify their diet. So the guys that have been on the team for two or three years, I mean, they're, they're familiar with, with these tests, what they mean and how to implement them um, in order to get the best recovery. And just lastly then, I guess, what's, if there was one key tip when it comes to diet, what should be remembered by cyclists? For me, I would say that the recovery is, is a massive aspect, and so carbs are king during racing, but it's like getting the protein in post-stage is really, really important. So on the bike, carbohydrates, recovery, think protein. Nutritionists Matt Rabin and before that Mark Quad from Team Garmin Transitions. Now that's almost it for this Naked Scientist special from the Tour de France. But we can't go without meeting the person that has to combine all this technology, nutrition and fitness together to try and win stages and jerseys. That's the cyclists themselves. I spoke to world-class sprinter Tyler Farah at the start of stage 10 to find out how he prepares. You know, for me, there's a lot of focus on real maximum power training and uh, high-speed work. So we do a lot of sprint training, a lot of riding behind a, a scooter or a journey, uh, kind of motor pacing to simulate racing in the final sprints. And then we're doing a lot of work with the power meters to kind of register what kind of values I'm putting out, how that relates to where I was at in my preparation before previous Tour de France's or Giro d'Italia's and things like that. What's your kind of goal then when you're looking at all of this in the training sessions and how much impact does it actually have when you're out riding? I mean, at the end of the day in racing, it's the results that count, not the numbers, but you can at least have a sense of where you're at in your training. You know, I know, for example, that if I'm doing a certain X number of watts in a sprint, that means I'll be in about the same shape I was in you know, when I was doing that right before another race that I won. So this is kind of a, a nice like gauge. So would you say then that think power is more important to you, perhaps, say, than monitoring things like heart rate or breathing? And things? It depends on who you are. As a sprinter, yeah, you know, sprints are so short, your heart can't catch up to the workload. So it's, it's power that, that really measures what you're, what you're actually doing. And how, how do you handle things like climbs then? So yesterday was a mammoth climb. So how do you handle things like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to train for that just to, to get through the stages. You know, that's the, the biggest thing is make it inside time cut. Try not to, to kill yourself too much. So, I mean, I actually spent a lot of time training in the hills too just to kind of build the general condition a lot. And um, I guess when it comes to cycling, it's more than just you as the person. It's your gear, it's your diet. So how much does that all play a role? Uh, it's all a factor, you know. Bike races are won by really small margins, so it's all the little things you can change and tweak that uh, that make the difference. It's how how you're eating, how you're sleeping, how you're training, and if you can do little tweaks that change 1%, that can be the difference between first and fifth place or something like that. Well, there's a lot of developments when it comes to, say, bike equipment. So is there, say, a particular technological advance that you would say has really helped you? wheel technology has been incredible you know they've, they've really changed the wheels we're racing on in the last 10 years so you know bikes don't look the same as they did 
a decade ago. And you know, there's there's a lot of limits on what a bike frame can be, how it's shaped. And but you know the building faster and faster and lighter and stiffer wheels is uh, what's really made a difference, I think. What about what you put inside you? So your diet is that like a key thing that you rely on, perhaps either before a ride or during, that really helps? As a team, we do a, an anti-inflammatory diet that uh, is pretty thorough. And then during the race, it's just a matter of staying hydrated, keeping keeping the food in you. And, you know, when it's as hot as it's been in this tour, you know, staying on top of the hydration is life or death, really. I mean, if you don't stay on top of it one day, your tour could be over. Well, this tour has been particularly hot on certain days, especially, I think, uh, Saturday, I heard even roads were melting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been really warm. So I mean, it's been a pretty cool year up to this day. So not a lot of guys are used to it. We haven't raced in the heat a lot. Yeah, it's been a bit of a shock to the system, but you expect that in the tour. I'm amazed when I hear about someone breaking their arm or like breaking a rib and continuing to cycle like 200 kilometers. So what would you? What's your worst perhaps injury been, and that you've actually then pursued and finished a race with? Well, Haven't you got a broken elbow now? I have a broken wrist right now. That this is certainly the. You know, I mean, I've had worse broken bones, but I've never, I haven't continued on with them. You know, I've broken my clavicle a few times, and I've broken my wrist before when I haven't been able to, to race on it. This time, it's a really small fracture, and I can, you know, kind of just grit my teeth and bear it. But yeah, I've been racing since stage two now with a broken wrist. So, what's your worst injury ever been, perhaps? Um, well, I've broken five collarbones, three wrists, and a rib. Uh, and you're still cycling. I, I throughout my career, not all at once, but, you know. Well, that would have been awful. You add it all up, yeah. I guess, actually, a key thing is being part of a team. So how much do you rely on your team to really kind of protect you and keep you going to help you do your final sprint? Oh, it's huge. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of fighting for position that goes on before the, the final sprint itself, and that's where my the team comes in to, to lead the sprint out and, you know, let me sit back in the draft and, and let them put me where I need to be. You know, it's, it's a little harder to put it into practice because there's 20 other teams trying to do the same thing. But, you know, we, we do the best we can. So what are your aims for this particular tour? You know, the hope coming here was to win a stage. Uh, I've been second on one stage. Uh, breaking my wrist derailed that a little bit because, for me personally, the most opportunities were in the first week. And when I broke my wrist, I, I missed almost all the sprints because for the first three days, I couldn't really sprint after. How did you break your wrist? Uh, there's just a lot of crashes on stage two, and I was in one of them and just hit the ground wrong. This year, has there been anything this year that's new that's kind of revolutionized perhaps the tour or cycling or the route? I think the, the way the teams have progressed in the last few years has really changed cycling a lot. It's, teams function as a unit a lot more than they used to. Races used to be a lot won by individuals a lot more, and now it's truly team efforts to win races almost always. Because the teams are functioning as a unit, the technology is becoming way more dispersed within the peloton because before, the top rider might have uh, the best stuff and then the teammates would just have the, the leftovers. The second good. Yeah, and now it's kind of, you know, everyone's riding on the same stuff. Everyone is really the top equipment, raising the general level of, uh, of the technology of the sport. And your thoughts for today? Uh, it's going to be a hot one. <laughs> and uh, it's Bastille Day, so I think uh, the French riders are going to be quite motivated today. In fact, Portuguese cyclist Sergio Paulinho went on to win stage 10 that day. That was sprint cyclist Tyler Farah from Team Garmin Transitions. Well, that's it for this Tour de France special edition of The Naked Scientists. Next week, Ben Bowsler and Diana O'Carroll will be digging down and reaching to the stars as we find out what's been going on in the worlds of archaeology and astronomy. The Naked Scientist was produced by Chris Smith and me, Mira Senthilingam. 
it was produced in association with The Open University. To discover a whole range of science content, including lots of interactive features, log on to thenakedscientist.com and follow the links to The Open University. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.